So welcome everyone. Nice to see all of you. Again, some of you and some of you for the first time. We're discussing from Bhagavad Gita. We've been doing this for a couple of years now. We're coming to the end of the third chapter. In the last class, we discussed an important verse of the Gita that in one sense was the antithesis of its conclusion. But we looked at it deeply and found that it could be looked at in such a way that it corresponded with the conclusion in a covert way, that is to say, it it says the same thing that the conclusion of the Gita says. The conclusion of the Gita is that we should forego any other pursuit and simply take shelter of Krishna. And that as a result of that, whatever, ordinarily, whatever reaction might come for foregoing one's responsibilities, duties, and so forth, that uh, Krishna will cover for them. This is a very, actually very, very heavy statement. But it is the conclusion of the Gita, whereas in the verse we discussed last week, as I say, overtly, it seemed to say just the opposite. It said you should do your duty and as, uh, attend to your responsibilities and this will bring good fortune and so forth. So, <coughs> the Bhagavad Gita obviously gives a gradation of religious and, and spiritual life and it very much underscores the idea of knowing where you are on the map so that you can apply yourself uh, appropriately and make advancement. Third chapter is basically about uh, it's about work. Karma means work. This chapter is entitled Karma Yoga. So it's the art of work in a, in a sense. How to work, that is to say, in such a way that we gradually become freed from the very thing that has us working. In other words, we have desires and therefore we're busy to fulfill those desires. But unfortunately, in fulfilling the desires through our actions, the desires don't go away, but they sometimes are even fueled by the by the, their pursuit. And other desires come and so forth. And so uh, how to get get out of that, even when we have a, a tendency to, to act and we have the desires. 
So, here in the third chapter, while speaking much about action and an action in the context of the Gita that's prescribed for different types of people based on their psychology and, and so on, Krishna speaks of the idea of, of working according to your nature and propensity and so forth, but in such a way that the fruits of your work you distance yourself from. You become detached from the fruits of the work and you make them as an offering unto God, something like that. So it speaks about a kind of a, a selfless way of life, moving in the direction of, of selflessness, even while we're doing the things that we want to do. <clears throat> so, here, tonight, we come to the conclusion of this chapter, and, and it, it, it begins with a question from Arjuna. He says, Atakena prayukto yam papam charati purushaha Anichcham api marshneya balad iva niyojitaha. By what influence, then, O descendant of Vrishni, a name for Krishna, does one act improperly as if forced to do so against one's own will? It's implied here that in this chapter the idea of appropriate actions and inappropriate actions has been addressed and in a general sense if we act appropriately we recall our progress even even materially speaking <clears throat> but as we know sometimes when we, we know something is good for us we nonetheless find ourselves doing the opposite so he, he's asking Arjuna is asking what is it that that, that cause I, I want to do the right thing, but what is it that causes me sometimes not to? As if uh, uh, that's like a, a powerful force that uh, overtakes me. Krishna answers. Sri Bhagavan Vacha Kama Esha Kroda Esha Rajaguna Samudbhavaha Mahashano Mahapapna Vidi Enam Iha Varinam he says, This force is lust, born of the Rajaguna. It eventually transforms into anger. It is insatiable, like a great fire, and very injurious. Know it to be the enemy. We find this kind of language in the Gita here and there, enemy, battle, and, and so forth. And of course, the context of the discussion between Krishna and Arjun is that it's uh, taking place on a battlefield, where a battle is about to happen. But on a deeper level, of course, it's speaking about the very battle of life that we're, we're all in, involved in and how we might be successful in that. How we might rise, that is to say, above the oppression of our mind and senses. How we might rise to the, to the real, to know the dignity of the self that finds itself embarrassed repeatedly under the influence of the demands of the mind and the senses. Although earlier in the text, Krishna has identified the force of delusion by referring to the gunas, the modes of nature, these uh, 
influences of, of material nature that um, are present in our psyche and also in a, in, in a physical sense. They, they preside in a sense over all of the movement, all of the action in the world. Sattva-guna, Rajaguna, Tamaguna. Guna also means rope. So the, the, the rope, the binding force of sattva, the binding force of rajas, the binding force of tamas. Sattva, in a physical sense, is that intelligible aspect of nature. That's what may, which makes a thing recognizable, you can, by which you, it can be identified. Uh, rajas is, is the, um, the drive, the m- movement, and Thomas is uh, something like uh, in- inertia. So, physically speaking, uh, these influences are obvious. They're named such in Bhagavad Gita. And in the psychic realm, they are also present. Sattva brings clarity, goodness. Rajas brings longing, and Thomas is the influence of uh, that uh, lethargy, and apathy, and and so on. So, obviously, the influence of Thomas, the influence of Rajas, are have more of a bewildering and deluding influence upon us, and sattva has an influence that brings clarity, insight into the nature of the self, and that there's more to pursue in life than material ambitions, there's better things to do in life than to lie in bed till late hours of the morning, and so on, or to take intoxication, as as may be the case. But here, the same kind of deluding influence is spoken of by by, uh, Lord Krishna in more kind of plain language that anybody can understand. He says to Arjuna, if you want to know what is that, is that force that deludes one and causes one to act against one's own interest, it's lust. And when lust is not dealt with appropriately, it, it, it doesn't uh, fulfill one when we pursue the demands of lust. Rather, it frustrates one and then it, it gives rise to well, frustration, anger. So this, again, he further identified with these with Rajaguna, lust, and Tamaguna, anger. So the balance of the chapter, four or five verses, Krishna elaborates about this lust, where how it's seated in the mind and in the intel- intellect and in the senses. He describes a material hierarchy, the objects of the senses, the senses themselves, the mind, above that the intellect, and above it all, he says, the self, distinct from the material hierarchy altogether. But under the influence of that material hierarchy, the self is identified with its intelligence, with its mind, with the demands of the senses, and so forth. And uh, the key to coming out from underneath that identification, that general bewilderment, is to kind of step back a moment and understand these things and how they're working and think about it and leave a life, leave a life that's introspective and, and thoughtful. 
this is the general thrust here that in our in Krishna's answer as to how to deal also with lust, to be introspective, to be thoughtful, understand where its situ- where its haunts are and uh, and how it affects us and uh, to know that you're 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 different than your mind theoretically, you're different than your senses, you're different than your your intelligence. This is only the third chapter of the Gita. And here in the third chapter, he's giving a very kind of an introduction to the whole idea of of yoga and the spirituality that the Bhagavad Gita ultimately brings us to. So he doesn't emphasize in 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 detail what we would uh, what the Gita really concludes is the is the solution to the problem of lust. Kam. The word lust here is 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 uh, in Sanskrit is Kama. It really means uh, desire, but often it's it's uh, identified with sexual desire because that's such a powerful desire, and it's said that in the, in the sexual act, all of one's senses can be gratified at the same time. It's very consuming, and um, it's very much considered to be the, the kind of the binding force to uh, material identification. It's the most powerful. Uh, desire, but in general, common means desire. So there are many, many I'd say, offshoots of that, uh, children of that desire, <laughs> that uh, is keeping us uh, busy in the world. And interestingly enough, if we look very carefully at kama, at the idea of of desire, which is in a sense the problem. As I said, you've seen that bumper sticker, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. So we have, because we have desire, therefore we're busy. We're up and around working and uh, trying to acquire and trying to get rid of things and, and so on. That's the driving force. It's the very, li- very, it's the very life. Without desire, might, one might wonder, uh, is there any meaning to life? So if we look very closely at desire, which in one sense is the problem. I say in one sense it's the problem, but as I just mentioned, we might wonder without desire, is there any life at all? So is it, is it really the problem? I mean, to some extent it, it is, yes, because I have desires, I'm, 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 I'm busy, I'm working hard, I'm, I'm, I'm taking trouble, I would like to relax and, and, and take time off, but my desires are forcing me to work. Yes, it's the problem, but in some schools of thought, spiritual thought, it's the problem, it needs to be eradicated, and then there's some type of spiritual life that results from eradicating desire that is talked about as being free from suffering, free from the struggle that desire brings on, it's, it's peaceful, it's very different from life as we know it. It's kind of like a eternal uh, restfulness, slumber. Now, that's not so bad. Uh, it's quite a good thing in many respects. Uh, it, it, you know, if, you, if you're running down the street because people are chasing you, they have demands upon you, and then you manage to get inside of a door and close it and lock it and 
they can't get in, that's uh, a relief. That's peaceful. I've given an example in, in, in my writing before in, in, in a mathematics sense. If you're in negative numbers and you rise to zero, you've gone somewhere. So zero has positive content when looked at in relation to having been in negative numbers. But the question that the Gaudiyas like to ask in our tradition is, there, are, there, is, are there any positive numbers? Is there anything that resembles life as we know it that's free from the uh, adverse effects that we're presently experiencing in the pursuit of our desires? And of course, the loud answer from the Gaudiyas is yes, yes, oh, it's an affirmation. There is such a thing that it resembles life as we know it, but is free from all of the the, the, the concomitant distress the, the that is now uh, accompanying our life based on desire. This is a very intriguing concept. But to arrive at that life, it does require that the present, our present orientation with regard to desire that has to be changed altogether. So what I'm saying is that if we look very closely at calm, at desire, which is the problem, we can also find the solution. In a a reflection, if there's a reflection, then there is something that's being reflected. So in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, we see calm, the present, our present desire, as a reflection of something. Krishna's name is also Kamdev. Kamdev means the, the, the god of, god of calm. Calm means also Cupid. Sometimes Kamdev is called Cupid. Krishna is the, is the, if you will, the, the transcendental Cupid. You know that Shiva was absorbed in meditation and living as an aesthetic. He, he was practically living naked, just a loincloth and hardly eating, practically living on air and meditating setting an example as a, a paradigmatic figure uh, for as to how to leave the world of desire, to get free from this madness that's, uh, that's causing me to, to struggle and work so hard with little reward. Little reward means we're not getting the kind of happiness we want from all of this. We should be honest about that. How much happiness do we want? We don't put a limit on that. <laughs> How much have we got? Not very much in comparison to our ideal. Our hairs are not standing on end at every moment. We're not crying tears of joy at every moment. So Shiva in meditation, he's trying to get away from the world of desire and find that, that peacefulness that comes from being freed from the negative influence of, of material desire. And at that time in his meditation, Cupid came. And Cupid tried to attract him. What did he do? 
he was able to break Shiva's meditation. But what did Shiva do? He looked at Cupid and burned him to death. Burned his body. Now you cannot do away with Cupid altogether. In your life you can do away with the Cupid's influence, but Cupid will still remain to influence others' lives. So the idea of this Hindu legend is Shiva in this sense, in this context as I'm speaking, exemplified a spiritual path of foregoing desire, trying to give up desire by using your intellect, we're discussing the logic of it, the reasoning of it, and to give up everything that ostensibly appears to be life, to go live in a cave, no shopping at uh, you know Macy's <laughs> for the latest fashions, no concern for traveling, what vehicle you'll get, to sit quietly in a cave, no, no concern for social interaction, and contemplate. Contemplate the fact that I'm different from, from matter, I'm not my mind, I'm not what my mind projects me to be, I'm not what my senses dictate I, I should be or have. Uh, uh, I'm more than what I could could intellectualize about if I had the biggest uh, brain in the world, as small as I am, a tiny spark of consciousness, it's far greater than anything material. So to think about all these things, to sit quietly. But when he was disturbed in his meditation, he became angry. It, it tells us this, that simply trying to forego desire, this can be very frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> if I was to tell you tonight so this is, this is the end of the story desire's the problem give it up thank you very much good night <laughs> so then your task is to go home and stop desiring it would be very difficult you might get frustrated not come back to hear from me again <laughs> but believe it or not people try to do that there are actual spiritual disciplines that are more or less uh, an attempt to do that and they're powerful, yoga's powerful, uh, and, and, and one can be successful to some extent. But the devotional tradition, the traditional devotional Vedanta that we come in, has a slightly different, a very actually different approach to this matter. A different approach to dealing with the problem, and it posits a, a, a different result. Not, a, not an entirely different result, I should say, the result you will get if you're successful in just stopping desire and more. Shiva burned Cupid's body to ashes. Sometimes, therefore, Cupid is called Ananga. Ango means body. Ananga means no body. Now, did Shiva solve the problem? By burning Cupid's body now he's become invisible. Well, he's all the more problematic. If you saw him coming, well, that would be one thing, but we don't see him coming. So what Arjun's saying, I don't see him coming, but he comes. Hits me over the head, I'm bewildered, I wake up and, why did I do that? I've thought about that before. I said I would never do that again. Here I am. Very tricky. So we can thank Lord Shiva for that. <laughs> Now come, Cupid, 
also approached Krishna. Where was Krishna? He was not sitting in a cave, meditating, wearing only a loincloth, emaciated, ribs sticking out. It was just pleasingly plump, nicely decorated, with a peacock feather in his has his headdress, nice uh, string of pearls and various uh, clays from the uh, uh, forest. He decorated his body with different colors and so forth. And 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 and, 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 and it was. What time did he come? Full moon. It was the full moon, harvest moon, Sarad Purnim. It's the love moon. Where was Krishna? Full moon night in the forest. What was his surroundings? Beautiful milkmaidens. Thousands of them. Cupid approached and thought, this is that a cakewalk here. I have this is, this is not going to be a problem at all. This is going to be very easy to do. What happened? Much to his surprise, Cupid was defeated. Kambijai. This is Ras Panchajai, means the Rasalila of Krishna. It covers five chapters of Srimad Bhagavatam. Ras Panchajai. Shiddhar Swami, the great commentator of Bhagavatam from days of yore, he called this chapter Kambijai. Vijai means victory over victory, and Kam means desire. He said, this chapter should be called Victory Over Desire. But it looks as if it's all about desire. You know that love has a way of hiding itself. Love has a way of concealing itself. It wants to share itself with everyone, but it quickly finds out who everyone is not fertile ground for me to share my, my love with. They won't understand. So it withdraws, and a secret language has evolved. And we can even in, in public we may sh- we may speak about it, but only certain people will know what we're talking about. Love has a way of hiding itself, concealing itself. It has a language of its own. And the highest spiritual love is is is. And I'm speaking of material love. And we, if we move to spiritual love, from the reflection of real love, that is material love or lust to spiritual love we find there's some semblance there's some as I say the reflection and the real object that's being reflected they have some correspondence so in this this Rasalila with Krishna's mixing with gopis milkmaidens young ones on the full moon night this looks like a very like a racy novel but actually it's all about how to how to overcome calm Desire, how to, how to defeat lust. But who would know it? Nityam Bhagavata Sevaya, Bhagavati Uttamashvokya Bhaktir Bhavati Naishtiki, Nityam Bhagavata Sevaya. You will know it if you study Bhagavatam, Nitya Bhagavatam Sevata, regularly. Not, oh, I read that. Is there anything on the TV tonight? <laughs> what's, in the, what's in the movies? What's the late? No. Nityam Bhagavata Sevaya. Nastaprayeshu abhadreshu nityam bhagavata sevaya bhagavati uttama shlokya bhaktir bhavati naishtiki 
when you become very serious about this, then you will be able to enter into it. And what will be the result? That you will become a gopi like in the serve Krishna? Not right away. Hmm? No, not so quickly. But you will find lust goes away. Desire goes away. You'll be happy. It will make you happy. You'll feel a great burden is lifted. But in order to understand that this is what that, that, that this love affair is about this, it, 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 that it is calm vijay, it is more than that. If we can conquer over that, that calm, oh, in this way, the whole life opens for us, a whole new life of possibilities, unlimited possibilities. But if we are to measure how much we are entering into that land of, of unlimited possibilities, this should be the art trick. How much is the desire going down? Be realistic with yourself how you're making spiritual progress, or how you're not. And if you're not, and you came to this for that purpose, then change your life. Make adjustments. Kama sinindriya pritir vabo jiveta yabhata viva sitatva jignasu marto yascheha karma vihi This comes in the beginning of the Bhagavatam. The story I'm speaking about, Krishna's dalliance with the gopis, that comes in the end. But in the beginning, the Bhagavatam says this, Priti means love. Kam, we know what that means. Indriya means senses. It means Kamasin Indriya Priti, love of the senses. Kamasin Indriya Priti Lavoji Veta Yabata. Life should never be lived for this. Who's this book talking to? Human beings. It's not talking to the animals, it's not talking to the birds. To the bees, he's talking to the human beings about the birds and the bees. Hmm? <laughs> we have the capacity to think about what is birds and bees and all these things. Birds and bees, they, they don't have the capacity. They are overwhelmed by the senses, by the demands. That particular embodiment has them only striving to meet the demands of that embodiment with no time to think about it. Human life is a chance where you have an opportunity to think about it. It's overwhelming to think where we are in the whole picture. We are human in human dress. This is where this nature wakes up to the fact that it has a soul. Oh my God. We are to think about that. And if we think appropriately about that with good guidance, we can know what to do. What, how to take it means how to take advantage of that. Not just it means human life is not just to become a big animal, to use your intelligence, your capacity to think about yourself, and answer questions of ponder the whys of things, just to find better ways to gratify your senses. This is, that is not human life. We call that dvipada pashu. Two-legged animal, mm-hmm. and a very dangerous one, also. Tiger may be dangerous, but you can meet him in the zoo, also. Which means intellect has power. If intellect is used appropriately to serve the soul's interest, that intellectual pursuit will be valuable. But if intellect is is used only to to further the needs of the demands of the senses and the mind, 
how far the soul will, will be obscured. He says, Bhagavatam said, life should never be lived, human life. Speaking to all of us. You've arrived at this point. Don't use it just to be a big animal. But jivasya tattva jignashu. You should live life for this. Human life should be lived because, because it's worth living because it gives us the chance to inquire into the nature of being and reality, jivasyatattva, what is the nature of life, what is it about, why is it, why am I, what am I, who am I, ke ami ke ne, jartapatrai, Sanatan Prabhu told Mahaprabhu Sri Chaitanya Dev, who am I, and why am I having to suffer, I don't want to. This question arises in human life, and there's an, there's an answer to the question. You know that there's an answer to all of the questions that arise in animal life, in bird life? There are four basic questions that arise in animal life, plant life, well, bird life, let's say, let's say animal life. Four basic questions. How to eat, sleep, have a place to sleep, how to mate, and how to defend myself. All these things, these questions are answered for every form of life. It's fascinating to see. We have a skunk up at our place. It's fascinating to think that he has a de- particular defense system and how it works for him. It works good. We stay out of his way. He comes in the barn with the cows and eats the cat's food. And brings his mate sometimes. I think we're going to walk in one morning and find the whole family in there. But... Um, it's fascinating to see, as I say, that nature has provided a system for their defense and there's no, they're not confused about how to mate. We're the only ones <laughs> confused about that. We are also confused how to defend ourselves. To what measures we should go. What to eat? Big question. Huge problem. Hmm? How to sleep? So many pillows, so many mattresses, so <laughs> pills to stay awake, pills to go to sleep. <laughs> And you might wonder, here we are talking about all this, discussing the animal life and so forth, in ways that they cannot discuss us. But why these basic questions, they've answered, and for us, they're problems. And this is the reason. The reason is because we have not pursued the questions that are really pertinent to us. Who am I? Why am I? We have not made this the focus of our life. And therefore, we, all these basic things, which would fall into place if you put the, the principal, most important questions of human life on the forefront, they're looming as huge questions and problems for us. Therefore, human life should be lived because it gives us a chance to inquire about these things, and we should inquire in the right places. Such texts as Bhagavad Gita from people who live the life of Bhagavad Gita and Srimad Bhagavatam and all these things. Make relevant, sincere inquiry there. This has been provided for human society as a means to answer the eating, sleeping, mating, defending problems and more. To bring an end to those problems, it is said about Sadgosamis, the, the, the six principal uh, disciples of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, 
nidra hara bihara kari bijito sankhya bhuvaka nama gana nati bihi nidra ahara these things eating, sleeping, mating, defending they found they had no time for these things sankhya bhuvaka nama gana nati bihi they sang about Krishna sankhya bhuvaka nama gana and in the regular way they sang about Krishna it had such a powerful effect that they forgot about eating. They forgot about sleeping. They forgot about defending themselves. They forgot about mating. They, through Krishna Nam, the name of Krishna, they entered into the Leela of Krishna. That story that I'm talking about, that full moon night, there's Krishna with all those milk maidens. What's that all about? That, that, that love that is so high and so confidential that it makes an appearance in this world such that it's not so easy to discern, to understand. It's hiding itself. It's a very secret thing. This is the private life of God. To enter into that, to be a player there in the drama of, of God's private life where God forgets himself, forgets that he's God. What is the force that, that causes him to forget that? The love of his devotees. It's so intense, so selfless, so far removed from selfish uh, life of, of mental and sensual oppression that we find ourselves in, that's attracted him, drawn out from him, the, 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 the most that can be drawn, and an intimate affair of love between uh, the devotee and, and God, God has forgotten himself. He lost in that. And Cupid's coming in, to, somehow he got a glimpse. What's this all about? And Kambijai. In a very basic sense, this is what it's about. This affair between Krishna and Gopis is about ending calm, material calm, and entering into a life, as I said, that's similar earlier, to the life we, as we know it, but very different. The foundation is different. In Chaitanya Charitamrita, Krishna's Kaviraj Goswami has given us a definition of lust. He says, Atmendriya Priti Vancha Tore Bole Kam Atma Indriya Priti Atma means self, Indriya means senses, Priti means love. He's saying that life that is selfish, that is love of the senses, when the self falls in love with the demands of its material senses, taroboli, calm. I call that calm. That's calm. Then he says, conversely, Krishnendriya priti icha. Dhare Premnam. Conversely, Krishna Indriya Priti. Love of Krishna's senses. That goes by the name Prem. Prem means love. It means love of God. He's saying Kam and Prem, they look similar on the outside. But they're worlds apart. What is the difference? 
Love of the senses, that is selfishness. And when we are addicted to that, to that extent, our self removes itself. It's obscured to the background. The beauty of the self is pushed to the background. Very unbecoming. We're moving out of the force of, of, of desire, meeting the demands of our minds and senses and so forth. Krishna's moving with gopis in the forest, cows, coward friends. There's a whole, there's a whole, there's a whole story, of course, of Krishna. Hmm? It looks like an ordinary boy uh, with young girls in the forest, but it's a very different thing. Cupid came in there and was defeated. One side is serving the senses, other side is serving the senses of Krishna. Very different idea. Similar, but very different. When I serve slave, I should say, after the demands of my senses, how can I be a giver? My senses and mind are demanding of me, and therefore I'm moving to fulfill their demands. How can I give? I'm being, so much is being demanded of me. I've identified with my material body, and as a result of that, I'm very busy meeting its demands. How can I give? And give is, love is giving. How much can I give? As much as I can move away from the demands of my senses, that's as much as that my soul will come out. Do you understand? In human life, we get the chance to voluntarily make a sacrifice. You may want to do something. That means your senses and mind may demand something, but you can think it's not the best thing. It won't be the best thing for that person, my friend, so I won't do that. Instead, of That's the kind of giving, right? Making a sacrifice. And that's moving away from the demands of your mind and sense moving away from animality. Moving towards humanity and ultimately spirituality. What I'm saying to you is as much as we've identified ourselves with the demands of our mind and senses, we cannot be a lover. We cannot be a giver. They're demanding on us and we're meeting their demands. Where, well, how much energy we have to give? If we can reason about it and, and, and know that, we, well, I could step back from it. As we do that, the soul starts to come out, starts to surface. There's an intangible gain in giving, at least visibly intangible, but a gain nonetheless. And you can only know it if you do it. Only if you give and subsequently get as a result of that can you know. Others, without doing it, others cannot know. If it, if it can be, it's, it's, it's not even logical. By giving, you will get. That doesn't make sense. Why should I do that? But this is something that is transrational, beyond logic. Love. There's tangible gain in giving. And we will nod our head and say, yes, I should be a giver. But what I'm saying to you, to fully give, 
and get as a result of it. Of course, you have to forget about the getting in order to give. You can't think, I'll be getting, therefore I'll give, or that much you're not giving. But to fully do that, to fully give, this is what we want. We want to be happy, we want to love, we want to be fulfilled in life. You have to give. But to fully give, to, you, have to, you have to realize that you are not this body. You are not what your mind says you are, or what uh, other people think you are. You are something very different. You're a soul. It's categorically different from matter. It has great, unlimited potential. It's a unit of, of, of joy. It has great potential for, 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 for happy life. To the extent that we become free from the oppression of the mind and the senses, we can be a lover. We can be a giver. And it's ironically, ironic because when we move in the direction of spirituality, our friends may think, hey, what's happening? How come you don't want to go to the party? You don't want to be friends with us anymore? Or do the things we used to do together? God save me from my friends. We may have to invoke that sometimes. They cannot understand. But that should not stop me from understanding. That should, that should compel me that much more. They don't understand. I cannot explain it. Maybe my guru can explain it, but still they won't understand it. <laughs> I can understand his explanation, but they won't. So shall I stop from pursuing that? No, I know. It looks like I'm not befriending them, but I'm doing really what's good for them. It's really in their interest. It's in my self-interest to move away from selfishness. And by doing that, I'm doing something for them, for everyone. I'm not ignoring them. I'm not deserting them. I'm trying to exemplify how they themselves can know themselves, and what, 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 uh, what lies in the soul and in love of God. So this is the idea. If we're not going to love as the senses dictate is love, as Cupid dictates, how are we going to love? Just to stop loving, stop desire, where are we then? This is the idea of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. This is the idea of Krishna. It means that there's life on the other side. There's loving that is, that is real love. It means, again, gratifying the senses of Krishna, that is love. Gratifying my senses, that is lust, that is calm. God has senses, not like our senses. God has form, not like our form. We tend to think maybe God is formless because we see oh, forms are limited and so forth. But uh, form need not be a limitation. It may facilitate. What is art without a canvas, without the brush? This is an abstract idea. Krishna is that form of the absolute, the form of joy. Joy has a shape. Joy has a color and movement. When the mystics speak about 
this idea of God, that they come up with, they, they, they experience what we call Krishna. The complexion, the sham, is the color of love, according to Indian aesthetic theory. The color of love. What is his movement? Dancing. It is said, Sriya Kanta Kanta, what is that verse? Um, first before that? Drumabhumis Jintamani Ganamayi Toyam Amritam Kataganam Natyam Gamanam Apibam Sipriyasati. In that realm, all the walking is dancing, all the talking is singing. Jiva Goswami asks, what must be the singing? What must be the dancing there? Absolute, the Absolute has a life. Reality celebrating its completeness is a kind of movement. Just like we may move because we have to move. That is the force of desire. Oh, I've got desires, I've got to move. But we also may move not out of desire. When we feel just happy and fulfilled, we may just move. Yahoo! They say. <laughs> they feel happy. So the Absolute, Godhead, is moving. It's not just still emptiness, peace, shanti, 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 but rasananda, joy, movement. And a movement is not out of necessity in order to survive, I have to move. But out of fullness, out of joy, out of completeness. So that we call lila, as opposed to karma, work, lila, joy, movement, carefree movement. <laughs>